It was my first um, trip on the plane. It was very exciting, but very sad because I felt that I'm going nowhere. Like, I don't know where I'm going. I'm going to X. That was Ed Yusuf. When he was 17, he and his family fled Syria and came to Australia, away from the escalating war. They faced many challenges. Ed's eldest brother was 29. He spoke good English and became responsible for supporting his family. He had been working for an oil company in Syria. It was hard at the beginning, especially coming from a, from a different system. It took his brother a year to find stable work. So what did you guys do between... Um, just looking for any job, looking, looking, looking. So did he take on other work, sort of casual work? No. It was a stressful time for Ed's brother. He, he had worked before and now he's in a different country with, with no work. And he's like in his 30s. So it was hard for him to, um, to just accept the fact that he's not working. Years later, after finishing a medical science degree at the University of New South Wales, Ed faced the same difficulty getting a job. While those graduating around him were able to rely on informal networks, like friends and family, to crack into the industry, Ed remained an outsider. I was, yeah, I was applying, but most of the time get, like, rejected. Especially when I applied to the um, pathology sector. They need someone with experience, which I don't have but how I can get, and that was like the puzzle. (laughs) Today on Changemakers, we're in Sydney, Australia. If the government isn't providing the right kind of help for refugees to find a job, can there be a different way? Today we are looking at the evolution of a remarkable market-based initiative that helps refugees create their own jobs. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We're supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. We have a proud record of welcoming people from 140 different nations. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. That was former Australian Prime Minister John Howard speaking in 2001. This speech marked a sharp conservative shift in government policy and national attitude towards refugees. A refugee is someone who has been forced to flee their country because of persecution, war or violence. Typically, Australia resettles about 14,000 refugees per year. But there are currently 68.5 million people waiting for resettlement to a safer place. Some people have lived in camps in substandard conditions uh, for many, many years, uh, children have not been able to uh, to go to school or to learn at all. Ed's family were lucky. They could have easily joined the 68 million people displaced globally, living in a refugee camp somewhere. I came to Australia in 2013. Before that, I was a young guy who's, who was doing year 11 in Damascus. But after the Arab uprising in 2011, Syria descended into a civil war. 
The fighting was first in regional cities like Aleppo, but soon enough, the conflict arrived in the capital, Damascus. One day I was approaching the school gate and the, the ground shaked as an earthquake. And as I approached the gate closer and closer, another shaking. So it was two consecutive bombings at one area. And when I went back home, I realized that my neighbor who was taking care of me when I was a child died in that bombing. And it didn't stop. So lots of missiles, um, lots of bombings, and um, not having like the chance to have a good education. At the time, Ed had a family in Australia. His sister had married an Australian in 2009 and moved across in 2010. Ed's mother had moved there in 2012. Uh, There was a bombing in Damascus that changed all the equation and then we asked mum to stay in Australia and if she can take us, that'll be great. If she can't, that's it, don't come back. There was a good chance Ed would never see his mother and his sister again. But luckily, Ed and the other members of the family managed to hastily arrange for family reunification visas to Australia. It was a shocking, fortunate strange transition to move from a war zone to outer suburban Sydney. It's very quiet here, like very, very quiet. And like the first couple of days we started making jokes about like, oh, there is no bombings, how come? (laughs) Yeah, and um, yeah, like every day I would wake up on the like birds, noises and bird sounds. So it it was good. Nevertheless, leaving your home and starting a new life in a foreign country can take a while. Everything is, is here, is available, like electricity, water, air-conditioned rooms. But I didn't miss my friends. I didn't miss my family back there. And it was going from a place for, full of noises, chaos, and very strong social life, I must say, even during war. It was very strong social life to a place with everything available, but social life is not as strong as in Syria. For example, shops close at 5pm and then life is dead till the next day. Language was a real barrier. On the first day we went to the shopping, I couldn't speak any English word. I was like, what's happening? I just came two days ago speaking fully Arabic and now I can speak English, but I can't say to the guy, oh, can I purchase this or can I buy this? Or how much is that? So mum was doing all that. So it was quite shocking for me. Remarkably, rather than be demoralised by the challenges, Ed used them as motivation. It kind, kind of like gave me the motivation to start something, to, to use those resources so I would make use of the quietness. So I don't just sit around and do nothing. Because there is electricity, I could use my laptop, I can do some study, I can do some reading. Because I was late 17 that time, my main concern was just to learn the language so I can interact with others and be more confident. It began by studying at an intensive English centre in Blacktown. But then his integration into the country suffered a setback. I was encouraged to do the HSC 
again. <laughs> and it was like that moment. It was very hard, especially that I had to do year 11 again due to the Australian HSC system. No matter where you are in the world, the idea of having to repeat a grade is universally frustrating. And for Ed, he wasn't being held back for mucking around. He'd been busy fleeing a war zone. Nevertheless, he dutifully enrolled at Leola High in Mount Druitt and completed his higher school certificate. It was a good experience because I made so many friends at year 11. My English improved a lot. I also learned so many things about the subjects that I already studied. So it was, it was good. And also I um, kind of like interacted with the teacher by telling him about, let's say, my physics class in Syria and the difference here. So um, he could like um, engage and interact with me in such a way that makes things easier for me. He made friends with his neighbours, including an un who introduced him to the Australian way of life. We, we, we had a Barbie <laughs> every now and then, yeah. <laughs> he had a Barbie, I love it. His neighbours schooled him in the peculiar art of the Aussie idiom. Some phrases sounded weird at the beginning for me, like, hey, raining cats and dogs. I was like, it's raining rain, normal <laughs> rain. And she said to me, no, 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 Ed, cats and dogs may, means heavy rain. So, yeah, that's, that's one of like one of the ways I was taught. When Ed finished his HSC, he believed his limited English language skills would make it difficult for him to pursue his first goal, studying dentistry, because of all the medical exams and interviews. Those are kind of like a, I wouldn't say a barriers, but like steps mm. that I have to, to do. So instead, Ed enrolled in a medical science undergraduate degree at the University of New South Wales. And can I just remind you, Ed had almost no English two years earlier. While Ed was studying at high school, he'd been volunteering at an organisation called Sid West Multicultural Services as part of a Year 11 program. I tutor young students uh, maths and science and yep, some English. I decided to help out as much as I can so that I can first put something on my resume and second, just it's good to help others and engage yeah, rather than just sitting at home doing homework. After graduating from university, he struggled to find work. He had no connections. Well, not none. There was the place he'd volunteered. So he went back to Sid West Multicultural Services. He helped out again and scored his first part-time job. The CEO saw his talent and approached him about a program that might help. It's called Ignite, but they are more specialised into starting up a business. Ignite. Remember that. We'll come back to it in a little bit. Struggling to find work is a common experience for refugees in Australia, but Ed and his family arrived at a particularly difficult time. Around that time, Immigration Minister Peter Dutton had decided to seek political advantage by ramping up anti-refugee rhetoric. Well, for many people, uh, they won't be, uh, uh, you know, numerate or literate in their own language, let alone English. And these people would be taking Australian jobs. There's no question about that. And for many of them that would be unemployed, they would languish uh, uh, in unemployment queues uh, and on Medicare and the rest of it. So there would be huge cost. 
Despite the inflammatory rhetoric, Australia has consistently provided support for refugees who arrive by plane. This process is called settlement, and in New South Wales, the primary organisation which does this work is called Settlement Services International. Well, Australia has a very sophisticated settlement program, probably the best in the world. Probably, I used to say, I'm biased, you know, <laughs> being in this environment. <laughs> That's Violet Romiliotis, the CEO of Settlement Services International, which is also known as SSI. She's been working on the issue of settlement of refugees in Australia for many years. She says that the negative political debate in Australia is what motivated her to start working with refugees. There was an environment of great fear in the community and the most vulnerable refugees and asylum seekers were being vilified. And I felt that it was so horrible that a Western country, such a rich country like Australia, would allow that, that our leaders would use the most vulnerable in our community, the most voiceless, uh, as political football, to me, was so anathema. I felt that I had to do something. So when a person lands in Australia, SSI provides all the basic help they need. They'll be picked up from the airport, provided with initial rental support, and then longer-term accommodation. The person then receives a bunch of direct support, anything from healthcare, trauma counselling, legal advice, help getting their kids to school, job services, and English language tuition. People are also linked to cultural groups and faith groups in their local area. And there's a range of different uh, plans set up for each individual family member, whether it's a baby or an older member of the family, that is really a bespoke sort of approach. So it's a case management approach. One of the key things is employment. Finding a job isn't easy. What are some of the obstacles that sit in their way? The key obstacle is English language. I think other challenges are around understanding, you know, how things operate in Australia. You know, simple things such as, you know, how do you, do, how do you sort of meet people? Like some of the great stories, younger people, teenagers say, how do I meet uh, young people? How do, I, how do I dress? Where do I go and meet people? Um, you know, how do you, in workplaces, how do you socialise? You know, what are the things, the un unsaid things that I need to know so I can fit in and get a sense of belonging? But a lot of people really do want to link into broader sort of mainstream groupings as well. They don't want to just stay with their own communities. That is a really hard thing to do if you don't speak English well or you don't have the confidence to do it. Um, and of course, if you're somebody who looks different and sounds different, it's not that easy to do. It's also hard to get your overseas skills and qualifications recognised in Australia. Bob McCotter is a business owner from Hurstville in Sydney who volunteers with SSI to help out refugees. You come to Australia as a refugee, you've, you've either got no qualifications formally or the ones you have you can't prove you've got or are not recognised. Your English is very poor, if not non-existent. You've got no local experience and no local contacts other than perhaps outside your own community. That makes you a pretty hot prospect to be an employee, doesn't it? Violet has first-hand experience working with refugees in these exact situations. There are so many people who would 
sit on the other side of the desk and it would come in and would you would look at their qualifications and they were skilled people who had either uh, white collar, they were working for many, many years in the industry in the country of origin, or they were tilers who had no qualifications but had done amazing work for many years. So they were people of great talent. However, they were not able to get through the front door of any workplace in Australia. Many of them would, well, would be on income support, um, thankfully. We have a welfare state and in, in a country like Australia and they would be able to support themselves but, you know, I mean, that, that income support is below the poverty line. They can't live on it uh, with much dignity. But it would be this vicious cycle of being uh, sent to apply for different jobs and interviews and this uh, endless sort of array of rejections. It was a process that benefited no one. You would look at their face and their eyes and there was this absolute sadness and demoralisation because they they felt absolutely worthless. And their stories, you know, so it was like this faceless person. And remember, refugees are not simply migrants. They are people who've come with trauma and they're people who've come from war-torn and very difficult situations. And given time, they will find work. Employment is important, but for people who've escaped persecution, there is every chance it will take time. While refugees come with a desire to work, finding a job isn't easy. There is something missing in the Australian employment space that saw too many people fall through the cracks. And there is a challenge for us as a country when people come who are highly educated and have experience in the country of origin and us translating that here and not losing, not losing that. She began to wonder if there could be another way for refugees to help themselves find work and become self-sufficient. Then, in 2011, she heard a TED talk by Ernesto Ciroli. I decided when I was 27 years old to only respond to people. And I invented a system called enterprise facilitation where you never initiate anything, you never motivate anybody, but you become a servant of the local passion, the servant of local people who have a dream to become a better person. Ernesto had experienced too much self-proclaimed expertise from working in the international aid sector. He wanted to move away from NGO-centred social interventions and instead created a program where experts advised and assisted local entrepreneurs to create their own businesses. There is a new generation of entrepreneurs who are dying of solitude. And what we do, we become friends. And we find out what that person wants to do. And then we help them to go and find the knowledge because nobody in the world can succeed alone. The idea of entrepreneurship resonated with Violet. And why is entrepreneurship a more alluring and interesting proposition? Because it's self-driven. You're allowing people to, be, to drive their own passion and their own way. It didn't just connect with her values it touched her own family's migrant experience. My parents' story, really, 
Greek immigrants arrived in the 1950s, aspirations for a better life and grew up in Western Sydney and I saw them building community, building a business and building a new life. Violet hadn't thought of her family as entrepreneurs, but the talk made her rethink this. I thought about my parents and their siblings and all my cousins, and there's a lot of them, 14 first cousins, and every single one runs a business. And even my husband runs a business. The migrant story is all about that. That's been their salvation. Migration and entrepreneurship share things in common. An entrepreneur has the capacity to envision something new and make it happen. It takes a lot of imagination and courage to do that, just as it does to leave your home and start a new life. There are people who were running businesses in their country of origin. They were enterprising. They had to survive. They don't have a welfare state propping them up. Violet, showing a fair degree of entrepreneurial zeal herself, didn't hesitate. She invited Ernesto to speak with the SSI board about his program and he won them over. The board gave Violet three years to run an enterprise program to cater first and foremost to refugees. The good news was that SSI had a way forward. But in some ways, what were they thinking? Setting up a business is incredibly hard. 50% of businesses in Australia fail in the first year. 80% after five years. And this is Australian-born people. So imagine the odds if you're coming from a totally different culture. Thinking through how this could be done made the SSI team worry about how Ernesto's program could be adapted for refugees. How would you work with people who don't speak English? How would facilitators actually work with a third person in the room? How would that dynamic change? Because that's a, that's a big thing, because the facilitator working with the, with the entrepreneur, building that trust, that relationship is critical. Violet realised that the model needed to be more flexible if it was to work for refugees. To make this entrepreneurial program work, it had to be uh, entrepreneurial. If we don't have a lens that is disruptive and that is um, enterprising and, and entrepreneurial, no, we wouldn't get anywhere. It was their willingness to be creative in the face of this challenge that saw the Ignite program come to life. The Ignite model built upon Ernesto's idea of collective entrepreneurship. Hopeful would-be refugee entrepreneurs come in with a business idea where they're supported by facilitators, industry experts and a resource team made up of volunteers who can share their business knowledge and skills. In order to get the program running, Violet needed help. And I thought to myself, I, I need to find somebody who really gets this and somebody who is going to be live and breathe it. Violet turned to her old friend and former colleague, Dina Petrakis. She's this extraordinary woman who never gives up and is the best storyteller I have ever met. She put her heart and soul into, into Ignite, and she is Ignite. Dina wrote the training packages and identified a support system that allowed the refugees to thrive. To bring to life the idea of collective entrepreneurship, she needed a team of people who could provide day-to-day -day support for the refugees who would become entrepreneurs. 
she required a team of facilitators. Among them was Natalia Ballantinhall. So I'm originally from Brazil and I've been in Australia for the past seven years. When I first joined SSI, I actually started as a marketing volunteer, helping. I was a member of their resource team. It was very fulfilling and um, it made me realise that I really wanted to have a more of a hands-on job as opposed to just behind the scenes. So when there was an opportunity to become a facilitator, I applied for the job Mm -hmm. and got the job. Being a migrant herself, Natalia could relate to some of the challenges the refugees faced. I know the struggles of moving and, um, you know, having to settle in a new country, obviously, and sometimes their CV don't look appealing enough for them to be even invited to an interview in the first place. Starting their business, it's their way out of unemployment. The facilitators help translate the complicated world of business so refugees can apply the rules to their plans. That's what makes, I think, this program so unique because we take our time. We work on one-on-one and we customise our service to each specific business and individual. And Natalia knows about the power of one-to-one support because that's how she came to be working with Ed Youssef. Ever since Ed moved to Australia, he had tried to educate people about his home, Syria. Then one day, that gave him an idea. I didn't see many Syrian um, places, like Syrian places or Syrian food places in Sydney. So I wanted to take the opportunity and try to present the Syrian food to the Australian community. And so it's not just a place for, it's also a place of delicious food. At that point, Ed knew nothing about starting a business. So how could he possibly make this idea a reality? It was back at Sid West that he was given a business card with the details of the Ignite program. He called them up and drove into Parramatta from Mount Druitt for his first meeting. The first meeting I was, I was sweating and stressed because going to a strange place in Parramatta and because of the parking and the traffic and mum keep telling me, oh, you're late. <laughs> yeah, so it was stressful. But after we were introduced to Natalia, it was like very, um, she was very welcoming. So we brought some samples and also food safety certificates. So she was impressed. It was clear Ed and his mum could cook. What they needed help with was how to turn this skill into a business. It's because I'm from medical science background. I was like, I knew nothing about um, either like marketing, financial aspects, like anything related to, to business and how to run a business. But on the first meeting, Natalia gave us a, she drew on the whiteboard a flowchart explaining everything. One meeting turned to many. Soon Ed and Natalia were coming together every three or four weeks to discuss his food business. Natalia guided Ed through the process, step by step. It was at, at my own pace, so they didn't want to push me like hard. Through the process, Ed found his voice. The marketing campaign for the business talked about his refugee story. Some people may consider refugees as a burden. We've seen that a lot on media. But the reality is a refugee is a person who had to do that forcefully. 
He didn't choose to. Ed's business created a bridge between his Syrian culture and his new Australian home. Me, my brother, my sister sometimes, we all used mum's recipes. We, we went from there, just starting with mum's recipes because she makes good food. We, we started the business. We started making food instead of for four people. We started making food for 86 at the beginning, up to 200 people at one night. There was something very important in how Ignite did its work. While Ed says the program guided him through the process, Natalia firmly places the onus upon the refugees to drive their business ideas. We do not motivate and we do not give any idea. That's not how we work. It needs to come from you. We don't care about what you want to do, but it needs to come from you. Because we know having a business is not easy. They need to be passionate about it because we do believe that if you're passionate about your business, you're going to make it through. You're going to work the extra hour. You're going to work until late on weekends. You're going to go above and beyond to make it happen. When Natalia explained this to me, it reminded me of a famous saying from community organising. It's called the Iron Rule. Don't do for others what they can do for themselves. Successful entrepreneurship requires incredible drive. While support is necessary, the engine room needs to come from the person themselves, from the business owner. A powerful relationship between a facilitator and a refugee was the starting point of the Ignite program. But those working at SSI also asked themselves, is that enough? Could there be a way to harness the strengths of the broader Australian corporate community and find ways for them to support the program? If you're looking to give back to a community, not-for-profit or whatever, you sit there and you think, well, what could I do? How do I get the best contribution from my skills? Current or retired business people could be incredibly helpful if they could be enlisted as partners. The real experience that I could bring to the table is a business expertise in quite a lot of different types of areas. There are plenty of people in corporate Australia worried about how we treat our refugees, and some of them have applied their entrepreneurial zeal to the question, how can they make a difference? That's what Bob did. After contacting a few different organisations with the hope of giving something back, Bob, an engineer from Hurstville, joined the Ignite program as one of their volunteer support team members. I'm old enough to have a quite extensive network of people that you can call on for a favour if you need them. (laughs) Many of the refugees he worked with didn't know the intricacies of how business was conducted in Australia. That included laws, taxes, insurance but it also included cultural norms. Your concepts of how business is conducted are very much framed by your life experience. In some countries, you literally shake hands and you do is done. But it's sometimes it's very hard for us to explain to our clients that in Australia, for them to start that same business, a lot of things needs to be done. They almost think that you're trying to stop them from doing it. So you need to explain, no, this is the Australian regulation. You need to follow that. Ignite does provide a safe way for people to move into a business without uh, jumping off the cliff and risking their entire life saving and their health in some cases. 
by, by providing them with the sort of framework that they can be successful. Ignite not only creates new businesses, it changes people. So I'm wondering how has being part of this program changed you or impacted on you? Every culture you work with, you, you, you get a different insight. I know almost nothing about Africa, but we have participants from Sierra Leone and Nigeria. And I've never been to the Middle East, so uh, it's been a real privilege to uh, interact. It's also given him a different understanding of the purpose of setting up a business. What's the standout lesson from what you've learned of being part of this project? That ironically, success in conventional business terms needs to be reframed. If someone can not be reliant on welfare or less reliant, he can follow a passion and a vision that might not turn them into BHP or anything like that, but allows them to provide for their family. That's a great success. Ignite was always an ambitious idea, but despite all the odds being against them, the program has enjoyed incredible success. We've got over 500 clients that have received support since program inception in 2013. Of these, 130 small businesses established to date. Over 60% of the entrepreneurs have generated enough income to be economically independent. And not shy to use the entrepreneurial spirit which the program champions, Violet ensured Ignite was self-funded. We were lucky because we're large and we were able to put a lot of our own funds to make this happen. It's all self-funded by SSI. We run like a social business and any efficiencies we reinvest back in. For Ed, being an entrepreneur helped him find a place in Australian society. The program didn't just provide me with the business starting steps. It also provided me with connections, with new ideas and with self-realisation that the environment here is welcoming, that people are supportive. Ed's food allows people to break bread and build new relationships. And so if people wanted to eat your delicious food, where would they go? They can visit our website, syrianacuisine.com.au. Connecting with the corporate world has been an important part of Violet's vision for Ignite. Not only does Violet believe that the corporate world has a responsibility to build community, but to do so actually benefits them. They need talent and they need to employ people and they need diverse workplaces. And we know from research that diverse workplaces are more productive workplaces, economically and socially and culturally. It's a philosophy that has the power to make long-lasting change. It's not just about profit, that there needs to be some sort of engagement with um, social outcomes and uh, contributing towards something more than just uh, the bottom line. In fact, Violet has already seen success in empowering the corporate world to invest in supporting refugees. We run a program with Alliance Insurance that has employed people in a cadet-like program and that's worked very well and they've won a human rights medal because of that program. What's significant is that you can contribute economically and be competitive and not lose your heart. That, you know, you don't have to compromise those ideals. You can be competitive and you can still be a, a human. 
It's a philosophy that won Violet Telstra's Businesswoman of the Year Award in 2017. But Violet's ambition for Ignite goes beyond assisting the individual. She believes it may change the way society thinks about refugees. I really do think that programs such as this can change the debate because it's evidence-based. If you could fund more enterprise facilitators on the ground and you get more businesses up and running, it does, it could make a big impact on the budget. It's such a creative way of coming at such a difficult debate in Australia. The political parties are stuck talking about refugee issues, so instead, this community has gone to the market to make new opportunities possible. A little program that was initiated out of the love of people that run SSI who know that refugees are more than a visa type. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. This is Series 3, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Changemakers is produced by me. This episode is written by Mark Isaacs and edited by Charles Firth and Amanda Tattersall. Our audio producers are Alex Cake and Jules Wookera. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. We are also supported by Amnesty International, Settlement Services International and the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.